Well, once again, uh, welcome and thank you for tuning in to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. Um, for those of you who perhaps have never listened to the show before, um, we have a very special guest uh, speaker with us, uh, Dr. Raymond Pete. Uh, there is the odd occasion where people have called in they've never heard him before, um, but I know a lot of people that listening to the show are listening uh, purely to glimpse some of his insights because I know he's uh, he's always got a different answer for things. Um, the number here, if you're in the area, is 707-986-923-3911 or there's an 800 number for people outside the area code, which is 1-800-KMUD-RAD. From 7.30 until the end of the show, at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated to this month's topic of Cal Prop 65, California's Proposition 65. Um, I started very briefly towards the end of July's show uh, saying I wanted to bring out some inconsistencies or incongruencies with uh, Prop 65 in the legislature in California. And... Um, We'll be bringing Dr. Pete on here in probably 10 or 15 minutes. I wanted to outline some uh, specific uh, testing uh, that we've done personally for uh, products uh, as part of GMP protocol for ICPMS uh, testing of metals, and specifically for the California Proposition 65 metals, which are arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury. Um, so what I wanted to start with was the... Uh, 1986, California voters uh, approved an initiative to address their growing concerns about exposure to toxic chemicals, and that initiative became the Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986, better known by its original name of Prop 65. Now, Prop 65 requires the state to publish a list of chemicals known to cause cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm. This list, which must be updated at least once a year, has grown to include approximately 800 chemicals since it was first published in 1987. And Prop 65 requires businesses to notify Californians about significant amounts of chemicals in the products they purchase in their homes or workplaces uh, or that are released into the environment. By providing this information, Prop 65 enables Californians to make informed decisions about protecting themselves from exposure to these chemicals. And Prop 65 also prohibits California businesses from knowingly discharging significant amounts of listed chemicals into sources of drinking water. Hooray, you say. Uh, the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, the OEHHA, as only these acronyms can be so stupendously long, administers the Prop 65 program. OEHHA, which is part of the California Environmental Protection Agency, also evaluates all currently available scientific information on substances considered for placement on the Prop 65 list. Now, two months ago, and the month prior to that, uh, uh, June, May, June and July, uh, we did a program uh, with Dr. Pete on progesterone, uh, explaining how the marginalization and, and demonization, if you like, actually, of progesterone is completely uh, wrong and how the uh, scientific evidence to put it on the Prop 65 list was completely erroneous. Um, and there are very, very innocuous products that are on the Prop 65 list that you probably have never, never heard of or never imagined could be on there. Uh, Prop 65 labels are just becoming increasingly uh, apparent in stores, especially in the uh, supplement department. 
uh, you walk the aisles of the supplement departments and take a look at whatever products you're looking at for alternative healthcare, and uh, you'll often find these small Prop 65 labels stuck on the bottles, um, just purely saying that the uh, products uh, may contain ca- chemicals known to the state of California to cause reproductive harm or cancer. Uh, and as we'll find out, it's a lot of litigation, fear. It's not really factual. And I'm going to bring out some very striking uh, incongruencies here. Now, a chemical can either be listed if uh, either of two independent committees or scientists and health professionals find that the chemical is being clearly shown to cause cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm. And these two committees, the Carcinogen Identification Committee, the CIC, and a developmental and reproductive toxicant identification, uh, this is the DART, they're part of OEHHAS's Science Advisory Board. The committee members are appointed by the governor and are designated as the state's qualified experts. And these are experts for evaluating chemicals under Prop 65. When determining whether a chemical should be placed on the list, the committees base their decision on the most current scientific information available, and the OEHHA staff scientists compile all relevant scientific evidence on various chemicals for the committees to review. The committees also consider comments from the public before making their decisions. So that's the first way. The second way for a chemical to be listed is if an organisation designated as an authoritative body by the CIC or DART, the Identification Committee, has identified it as causing cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm. The following organisations have been designated as authoritative bodies, the US Environmental Protection Agency, the US Food and Drug Administration, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the National Toxicology Program, and the International Agency for Research on Cancer. A third way for a chemical to be listed is if an agency of the state or federal government requires that it be labelled or identified as causing cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm. Now, most chemicals listed in this manner are prescription drugs that are required by the U.S., FDA to contain warnings relating to cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm. Uh, We've certainly seen plenty of drugs like that. Now, the fourth way requires the listing of chemicals meeting certain scientific criteria and identified in the California Labor Code as causing cancer or birth defects or other reproductive harm. And this method established the initial chemical list following voter approval of Prop 65 in 1986 and continues to be used as the basis for listing as appropriate. Now, how about this? Businesses with less than 10 employees and government agencies are exempt from Proposition 65 warning requirements and prohibition on discharges into water drinking sources. Okay, did you catch that? So if your business has less than 10 employees or you're a government agency you're completely exempt from discharging waste into drinking water and uh, the relevant Prop 65 warnings. So Proposition 65's warning requirement has provided, on the upside, an incentive uh, for manufacturers to remove listed chemicals from their products. For example, trichloroethylene, uh, which causes cancer, is no longer used in most correction fluids uh, for wiping out type. Uh, Reformulated paint strippers do not contain the carcinogen methylene chloride, and toluene, which causes birth defects or other reproductive harm, has been removed from many nail care products. In addition, the Prop 65 enforcement action prompted manufacturers to decrease the lead content in ceramic tableware 
and wineries to eliminate the use of lead-containing foil caps on wine bottles. So whilst the prop has some very positive benefits, it drastically needs reframing within a realistic criteria. How can a business with fewer than 10 employees be exempt from a legislation that would sue a larger company producing the same product? And how is it that commonly available foodstuffs are far over the maximum allowable daily limit currently in place and legislated for by Prop 65? Now, it seems the only winners from Proposition 65 are the attorneys who bring the lawsuits, and there are some additional facts that are not so commonly known. Now, chief amongst these are... Since Californians have been warned of possible carcinogens for the past 27 years, one would expect to see a decline in cancer rates compared to those states that didn't adopt similar right-to-know laws. In fact, no such decline exists. There isn't a single medical study that demonstrates any public health benefits of Proposition 65, and there is no evidence that Prop 65 has lowered cancer incidence amongst Californians. Most startling. Proposition 65 has been a bonanza for the bounty hunter law firms that drive such lawsuits using paid plaintiffs. Between 2000 and 2011, there were 2,381 settlements that cost targets nearly $180 million, exclusive of plaintiffs' legal costs and court costs. Sadly, the systematic legalised abuses surrounding Prop 65 have resulted in all too real economic effects on individuals as well as their employers. Our workers suffer lower income or job security in affected businesses, and the California government has had to spend taxpayer money for administrative and court costs relating to the law. So let's look at some real-world examples of actual values for some Prop 65 chemicals that I've personal experience working with, and being GMP compliant, we have to periodically test our products for the so-called California Big Four. And these are, as I said, arsenic, cadmium, lead and mercury. So, how do we do this? The uh, most common uh, process now is called ICPMS. ICPMS. It's inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry and uh, one of the most sophisticated technologies to date to quantify components to detect levels down to three parts per billion. So typically a PPB part per billion uh, quantification is what's used and typically uh, that detection limit is about four parts per billion is about as uh, low as it can go. It may well change as time goes on and technology improves but uh, certainly much more sophisticated than the previous uh, calibrations for it. Now Prop 65 components of natural medicinal herbs which are tested by ICPMS include as I said arsenic, cadmium, lead and mercury. Now, for above-ground foliage, uh, the analysis shows typical ranges in the low teens to 60s uh, parts per billion. Not of mercury, typically, uh, but for cadmium, arsenic and lead. Uh, root analysis, uh, typical ranges mid-20s to 100s, uh, depending on the location grown and the species. Now, I'll just give you a quote here from some before and after extraction results that we've done personally. Uh, we'd purchase a product, uh, we would spot check it for uh, confirmation of a vendor certificate, uh, send it off and get an ICPMS analysis for it. Uh, once the product's cleared QC and has been produced, that extract is also then sent off uh, for ICPMS analysis and then uh, we can see what kind of uh, product we've produced or what the extraction process has done uh, for the metals that may have been present in the raw material. 
So, turmeric root. Uh, have a think about that, will you? Uh, lots of people eat turmeric for its health benefits. Its documented anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer activity are published and have been known for some time, especially in Ayurvedic medicine. Now, the quantity, typical quantity in raw root uh, were as follows. Arsenic, 395 parts per billion. Cadmium, 41.9. Lead, 646. Unfortunately, mercury was undetected. So after extraction, the liquid extract was retested and came back with the following report. Arsenic, 68.1. Cadmium, undetected. Lead, 6.6. Mercury, undetected. Another fairly common herb, uh, lobelia. Uh, arsenic was 43.9, cadmium 79.6, lead 357, and mercury 10.2. Now, after extraction, the liquid extract was retested and came back with the following report, where all the tested elements were actually below the detection limit. And then echinacea root. People are very familiar with echinacea. Uh, the arsenic there was 115, and the cadmium came back at 20.5, uh, the lead was 17.3 and mercury in that sample was undetected. And then after dis- extraction, the liquid extract was retested and came back with the following report. Arsenic 5.9, cadmium, lead and mercury undetected. In fact, in, in all of the ICPMS testing that we've done, which is extensive, extraction produces a 5 to 10 fold and above removal of any existing raw material components listed by Prop 65 and resulting in the maximum allowable daily limits, which are well within Prop 65's legislatively directed values. In many cases, the raw material would fall outside the allowable exposure, but what I really want to point out was the foodstuffs we had tested. So crab, we had crab tested, and this is local crab here from uh, Shelter Cove on the Pacific coast here. So crab, arsenic came back at 12,400. Okay, so previous herbs will be things like 395, 43, and 115. The crab was 12,400. Uh, now, when I spoke to the scientist at the uh, lab that tested this, they did offer the uh, consolation that this arsenic uh, was not potentially a toxic product uh, and that they could do specific speciation for this to find out whether or not uh, the actual amount of toxic arsenic was uh, as high as it looked like. Um, so anyway, the cadmium was 10.4, the lead was 10.3, and mercury was 109. Okay, 109 parts per billion mercury. Now, this vastly exceeds the maximum allowable daily limit set by Prop 65, given you'd conceivably, conceivably consume 8 to 10 ounces of crab in one serving, compared with a half teaspoon dose of extract taken 1 to 3 times per day. Now, how about this? Cod. Uh, we tested cod, uh, and the cod came back with an arsenic count of 115. Actually, the cadmium was uh, less than 9.4. The lead came back at 30.3, and the mercury was 473 parts per billion. So eating a 12-ounce portion of this would give you way higher exposure to methylmercury, the most toxic and abundant oceanic form that uh, we get exposed to. Okay, but it gets worse. Halibut. We tested some halibut. Uh, arsenic was 602, cadmium it was down to 9.2, the lead was 23, and the mercury was 794 parts per billion. Again, with a serving amount typically of 8 to 10 ounces, folks. So the last thing I did was uh, for seafood was salmon. 
it was a young fish it was about a nine pound fish so it's quite a small one and obviously we'll get into the whole predation thing and the uh, food chain accumulation etc which became pretty evident so this nine pound fish came in slightly better with these values arsenic was 428 cadmium 10.1 lead uh, was less than 10.1 mercury was 72 so still with a much higher mad hour set by prop 65 whichever way you cut it so legislation for dietary supplement manufacturers imposes stringent maximum allowable daily limits set by prop 65 values which pale into insignificance when compared to seafood for example now we also tested some elk meat it had been hunted and uh, it was not surprising that it was very clean now the only detectable component was arsenic and it had a value of 64.7 but lead mercury and cadmium were undetected so i just wanted to say that terrestrial roots and foliage crops naturally sequester minerals found in a rock which form the soil in which they grow and pollution in industrial countries that's airborne finds its way back to the soil by being washed out in rains or as fallout from airborne particulates heavier than air characterizing asian or indian farm products subjected to the conditions reminiscent of the era of industrialization in europe the products i mentioned were all certified organic by the way now terrestrial and oceanic life grazing on foliage or consuming other animals sequester these accumulated products and the higher up the food chain the higher the value in the animal as seen from our experiments now the whole point is the meaning of any initiative like prop 65 to save us from harm has to be weighed both by the freedoms lost as a result of government being in charge to look after us rather than we the people as a self-governing body with practical and reasonable jurisprudence not dictated by either control for higher bounty hunters but by common sense which seems to have gone the way of the dinosaurs now i know when i'd uh, spoken to dr pete uh, preparing some of the material for two months ago uh, looking at progesterone that progesterone uh, was on the prop 65 list and uh, we went through the science and the committee papers that were used as quote unquote evidence for um, suspect you know suspecting uh, progesterone as a uh, mitogen or as a uh, cancer promoter uh, when actually uh, dr pete's very familiar with the whole uh, progesterone debacle um having studied uh, hormones and especially progesterone uh, as one of his uh, you know, thesis past his uh, phd so dr pete are you on the air yes Okay, well, sorry to have blathered on here for 20 minutes with uh, what I was first talking about, but in terms of um, Proposition 65 and its actual its actual effects to the consumer, um, don't you think that some of this is a little bit out of control in terms of uh, writing laws for it and giving amounts which they say they u- they clearly say that they're using a 1,000 times uh, safety factor. So I know for progesterone that you're uh, very aware of how maligned it was and there was absolutely no uh, real evidence for it because the tests that they did on the beagles, etc., was really pretty poor uh, scientific process. But in terms of Prop 65, do you uh, have any, any, th- any thoughts on it in terms of uh, how it affects people or what, uh, what you think the, the government are doing? Well, uh, well the, the, um, the way the committee... It's set up. Uh, Doctor uh, Pete, could you speak up a bit? Um, the um, people on, in charge of, of choosing the evidence 
uh, are um, appointed, and they are basically um, able to lobby for um, products that that they are associated with. Mm-hmm. When when I was in contact with the agency uh, uh, ten years ago, uh, three of the uh, members were from a single university. Uh, three, uh, these three all had conflicts of interest. Uh, one woman was a, a, a representative of a, a company developing transdermal uh, products, uh, including hormones. Uh, two of the people were connected with the development of uh, a new approach to birth control, which involved the suppression of progesterone. Uh, and uh, the, um, the articles that were chosen, uh, supposedly all relevant evidence relating to the carcinogenicity of a substance are to be considered. Fewer than 1% of the articles relating to progesterone and cancer were even um, listed and of those, two of them were about a totally different substance, a carcinogenic synthetic progestin. And one of the articles uh, that they cited as evidence of the carcinogenicity of the, the actual substance progesterone was actually someone's attempt to uh, refute a, a famous a publication showing that progesterone prevents and cures cancer. And uh, it, th- this publication was uh, used explicitly a method that the, the one who were trying to refute, uh, a method that they said previously didn't work at all. So they used a known false method to supposedly invalidate the evidence showing that progesterone cures cancer, and that was listed by the committee as evidence that progesterone causes cancer. It was like the people were uh, basically drunk when they were choosing the papers. Uh, And I asked the uh, chairman of the committee uh, for the names of the people who made those crazy uh, choices of evidence and uh, she said they were too busy to give me that information. Uh, and uh, my impression was that uh, it was uh, uh, not really a, a regulatory agency in, in public interest. It was uh, mm-hmm. uh, promoting products. Right. On, uh, a, on a pay-for-view basis. Yeah. And, and the, the university that uh, these people worked for uh, I looked at their research uh, support. Uh, I forget the number of many. Uh, there were dozens of, of uh, grants uh, promoting uh, arguments, research, uh, that gave the impression that estrogen was therapeutic for many different things. And I looked for how much they had on progesterone. They had two or three research grants which were aimed to uh, show that progesterone was harmful. And this was 10 years ago, just three years <clears throat> after the, uh, the Women's International uh, Health Study uh, showed that the uh, 
the um, combination of estrogen and synthetic progestin caused uh, cancer, strokes, dementia, heart disease, blood clots, and uh, with... Would you be able to get a little closer to the mic- to the uh, microphone or the oh. phone? I think the uh, engineer is trying to tell me that you're coming in very quietly. Oh, okay. The, the, um, the result of that study, uh, Women's International uh, Health uh, Study, um, showed that uh, the... the um, those negative results resulted <clears throat> in an extreme <laughs> rejection by, by women of, of the, the use of, of that uh, combination of synthetic progestin and estrogen. And the, um, there was an 80% decrease in the use of that particular prescription uh, form of progestin plus estrogen mm-hmm. with, with the loss to... Uh, one company lost billions in sales. Um, every everyone uh, invested in in promoting estrogen, especially with a synthetic progestin, uh, saw their uh, main uh, profit-making product uh, being uh, becoming very unpopular, and, and uh, suddenly. Uh, at that same time, when estrogen sales were falling, progesterone sales had increased a hundredfold, mm-hmm. and suddenly money became available to research progesterone as a toxic substance. And and since that time, since um, the early uh, years, right after the, the study came out, uh, there has been just a flood of of uh, People researching progesterone as, as a brain toxin, a carcinogen, and so on. And when you examine each one of these, uh, they're doing things known previously to produce uh, the results that, that look bad. Right. Uh, for example, where uh, progesterone uh, is known to uh, reverse a brain tumor, uh, they were using. Uh, about a hundred times smaller dose, and claiming that it caused the tumor, uh, and uh, finding uh, changes in breast tissue uh, that they said was associated with breast cancer uh, to um, distract attention from the studies that showed that it reversed and prevented breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're listening to Ask Europe, Doctor on KMD Garbabool ninety one point one FM. Uh, from 7.30, that's now, until the end of the show, 8 o'clock. Uh, you're invited to call in with any questions related or unrelated uh, to this month's discussion here of uh, Cal Prop 65 uh, and its effects. Uh, and also uh, we'll be, like I said, opening up for questions that then have to be surrounding that. And I do have uh, some questions that have been previously written uh, that I want to ask Dr. Pete about uh, for his feedback. <clears throat> so, Dr. P, I guess not to uh, uh, labour the cow prop 65 thing anymore other than to just explain that um, there certainly is a... Isn't it the way always in government, though? No, there's certainly uh, interested parties for and against certain things happening and obviously collusion uh, between companies, uh, especially when there's plenty of money involved to protect vested interests. Um 
But uh, I think if people ever wanted to uh, find out more about this, and I mentioned this on the last radio show, that uh, Dr. Carla Rosenberg's uh, PhD dissertation was basically exposing all of the bad evidence, all the bad scientific, supposedly scientific uh, reasons for which uh, were given that progesterone was um, to be deemed uh, a fit for the list uh, was actually very in- inconsistent and um, she clearly outlines the mistakes that were made but like anything else in big government I think it's just extremely difficult um, to get it to change it's like trying to change the direction of an oil tanker once it's moving in a certain direction it takes a long time it's taken how many years here to uh, get people to stop and well hopefully stop consuming uh, liquid oils and recognize the fact that the brainwashing surrounding saturated fats is actually very wrong and that people are actually much better off using saturated fats it's probably taken 50 or 60 years um, but anyway we have a caller on the uh, on the air so let's take this first caller call away from and what's your question Hi there, um, my name's Allie. I'm from Calgary, Alberta. Okay, hi, welcome um, to the show. My question is, well, basically a few years ago I developed symptoms of androgen excess, okay. such as like hirsutism, and I, my voice actually like got a lot lower. Um, okay. And then about a year after the onset of these traits, I decided to supplement with progesterone after reading Ray Pete's um, writing. Okay. Well, this hormone, like, it it did work wonders for many symptoms. However, my voice never went back to normal, and a few other things never went back to normal. Okay. And it actually also caused extreme irritability. Um, but anyway, my question is basically, do you think it's possible to get my singing voice back to where I can sing high notes easily again? Um, how, how, old, or, how, how old are you first? Did you say? I can't um, So I'm 23. 23, okay. So whether it's possible to get your high notes back again, uh, because that's one of the main things that have been uh, troubling you that hasn't returned, is your, you say your voice has um, deepened. Yeah, but and my singing teacher actually told me that too. Like, my voice dropped like eight notes or something like that, even my singing voice, or my speaking voice, sorry. Okay. Huh. Dr. Pete. Um, well, her, her speaking voice doesn't uh, sound yeah. as masculinized <laughs> as <laughs> many women that I've, I've known who use uh, androgens uh, by prescription, or the two who had an ovarian uh, problem with excess androgen production. Uh, they very often get uh, voices almost as low as, as mine, uh, a normal male pitch. Uh, but um, what happens under the influence of androgens, uh, the, the way they uh, change the a uh, hair follicle uh, involves uh, uh, reorganization of the whole structure of the hair follicle. But since the the hair follicle has a, a finite lifespan, uh, if you uh, interrupt that stimulation uh, consistently, like there was a study in France showing women who applied topical progesterone to um, sideburns and mustache and chest hair that had developed under androgen stimulation. They stayed with it uh, through the expected lifespan of Mm -hmm. of these hair follicles and re-feminized their facial and chest hair. But in in the case of vocal cords, uh, if they actually develop a, a, a male pitch, uh, that's because they have grown and enlarged 
and it isn't if you, the, the whole voice box enlarges um, and generally you can't see a, a woman's Adam's apple uh, uh, like a, a man's uh, sticks out in proportion to how bass their voice is and if the, the whole cartilage voice box is enlarged uh, the uh, vocal cords have to adapt and uh, they simply uh, don't have any way to to get smaller without uh, the, the framework that's holding them changing. Hmm. Okay. How, how long? How long did you say that um, you were um, under the influence of this uh, androgenic ex- excess that gave you the hair suitism? And um, it's actually kind of interesting um, looking back because um, I, you know, I it, it was only for a period of a few months. But um, I was living a very toxic lifestyle. Um, my job had me working eight hours, basically walking to and from tables. I was a waitress, and I never got a break. I didn't get a chance to eat. Um, and so I was, like, exercising for eight, eight, sometimes 12 hours a day for about three months, um, four days a week. And, it's, you know, I don't know why it caused that in me, because clearly a lot of waitresses don't have that problem. But... Um, I, I was a girl who, you know, I could sing very, very, very high notes before, and I had almost, um, I'm sorry if this is too much information, I ha- had almost no body hair at all. And then after waitressing, you know, both of those plus other changes happened, um, and I would, you know, call it virilization. And then um, it also happened again a few years later, when I was waitressing again. Right, and those were the situations. only times that that's ever happened to me. Right. Since your voice doesn't really have a masculine quality, it's possible that um, some of the uh, loss of the high notes is the result of uh, swelling or edema. Uh, and uh, often uh, something that suppresses thyroid function will cause edema of the vocal cords, and just by correcting uh, the thyroid, ideally, uh, the the water can quickly uh, be extruded. Uh, even the cartilage can shape, change shape a little bit by by losing some of its excess water. And so, it would be a good idea to have your thyroid carefully checked. Uh, check your waking temperature and pulse rate and your midday temperature and pulse rate. Uh, and if your TSH is uh, not in the lower end of the normal range, uh, then uh, it's possible that just a thyroid supplement uh, would uh, raise, raise your uh, range a little bit. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, but by the way, did you ever get your estradiol to progesterone uh, measured? Did you did you ever ever have that value looked at? Um, well, uh, I I actually didn't. I so I had my estrogen measured, um, and I have like the whole panel with me, but it, it was measured a while ago. Okay. Um, and um, it, you know, I didn't really pay too much attention to it. The estrogen said it was like sixty or something on the blood test, but I know from reading Ray's writing, at least how I interpreted it, I was under the impression that um, you can't actually measure estrogen in the blood and, like, it's not a good reflection, but correct me if I'm wrong. 
Yeah, well, the blood test for estradiol is certainly uh, very relative in terms of uh, it's a subjective amount, and uh, when your progesterone is measured, there's a very definite ratio between the two, uh, which is oh, very... Yeah, and he, didn't, he did not measure progesterone. Okay. All right. All right, well, thank you for your call. I, uh, if okay, you, thank you so, so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Okay, so we do actually have three callers on the line, so let's, uh, let's take this next caller on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Yeah, my name's Jeff, and I actually have two questions. I'm from New York. You're from New York. Okay, cool. And uh, first one is, um, I've actually been doing the Dr. Pete um, diet. I've listened to all the shows. And what I'm finding is that uh, I'm taking 90 milligrams of uh, natural desiccated thyroid twice a day. So it's about three grains a day. But the pulse um, in the AM is always right around 60, and the temperature is anywhere between 97.2 and 97.8. So then if you go to midday... It's cutting up a little bit to like 70, uh, sorry, to 68, 69, but it never gets, you know, to 75 or 80 ever. And the, the, the temperature never gets above 98.2, maybe rarely, maybe if I run. So I'm in good shape. As I say, I follow the diet um, and I'm 60. And I'm just wondering, um, I know the ranges, you talk about sort of pulse and but specifically, I know there was a show that questioned gave you questions about what if the pulse goes up and, and temp goes down, all that, but this is pretty basic. It's like in the morning, what should it be? And at midday, what should it be relative to what I just gave you? And what would you do to, to change that? That's the first question. Okay. And the, the second question, and part of the other thing is, I found through this process, a lot of things have gotten better. Mental clarity, all physical symptoms, except I actually think there has been an increase in male pattern baldness on the very top of the head. Um, Ironically, so I'm just wondering if that. Uh, and this is only, the only thing you're taking is is three grains of um, of a natural glandular. That's right. Okay. I didn't. I don't want to mess with the other because, given all I've heard, I just feel let the body decide what it needs. Mm-hmm. And I think Dr. Pete said that on other radio programs. Yeah. The body will decide it's a much safer way to do it. It may not be directly immediately as effective, but I, I prefer doing that for the reason I mentioned. Right. Dr. Pete, so what was that question clear? Yeah, have you ever had a blood test for TSH? Yeah, I have. It was about 1.8. I haven't had it in a while. At that same time, I had a a cholesterol, total cholesterol of 330. Mm -hmm. The guy wanted to put me on statin drugs, and I Mm -hmm. I, I brought his attention to the piece you mentioned. uh, I have a copy of that shows there's no correlation between cholesterol. And uh, to me, that was an indication at heart attacks. Um, But... There's an indication that clearly that my thyroid was underactive, which has kind of got me... Were you were you taking this glandular when you got your TSH of 1.8? I started taking that, right. Are you, you, do you, right. So you got a TSH of 1.8, and then you decided to start using a natural glandular. Yeah, 1.8 is high. Yeah, right? exactly. So, and, yeah. and my my T3 level was on the low end of the scale. With, that's their scale, which mm-hmm. may or may not be useful. Um, and the T4 was sort of on the average end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it, they didn't take reverse T3, so I don't know that. But have, um, have they measured the cholesterol since you've been taking thyroid? No, I'm due for another blood test, but I'm. Sh- my guess is it'll go down. But I'll, um, you know, my my real question related to the temperature. I, I think I can answer those questions after the next blood test. My guess is it'll go dr- down dramatically because I am in very good physical shape. I know you guys say don't jog, but I, I do do you know under two miles three times a week, mostly with sprints. So I feel that, like, no activity is, like, not useful. But obviously, 
as you pointed out, jogging is, um, you know, repeatedly running marathons, etc., is long-term detrimental. But I, I don't think you go to the other end and literally do nothing but ride a bike. You know, I, I think you, you got to do more than that, at least in my case. So, so, and I think you said that sprinting is okay in some of your write-ups. In other words, doing like five, six sprints for 20 yards, etc., after sort of warming up, and that's... Uh, have your muscles enlarged noticeably since taking the thyroid? Not at all. Uh, I have the same weight. My weight goes from 172 to 178. It's sort of centered around 175. It's been my weight for a long time. Um, I do find it drops, though, from in the evening, I mean, from um, to sleep to the next morning, but it's usually in that range. Um, mental clarity is so much better, but... Um, um, that's really the key, and that's why I'm, um, I'm used to this. And I definitely, I thought, you're definitely right about the PUFA. There's no doubt about it. It's the biggest uh, yeah, hoax it, in the world. Um, in in uh, animal experiments, it uh, takes about four years for a complete exchange when you stop eating PUFA. Uh, the, uh, it, it's just a, a random exchange of what's in your present diet and what's in your body, and that, that takes... Uh, four years to be complete, so uh, takes about two years to to get a good fifty uh, percent reduction in it, where you'll start feeling your thyroid uh, more consistently. Because for taking oh, okay. th- for taking okay. three so, grains, so your pulses that, and temperatures do seem pretty low. If someone is is uh, overweight, it would take four years. But um, on the lean side, more muscular and more active, um, perhaps that accelerates the process. But but by the way, there's no chance that you can eliminate PUFA. I mean, the notion of getting five milligrams per day is like a fantasy. You just can't do that. It's like impossible for anybody, no, I, even on even you, Dr. Pete, there's no way you can limit it to five milligrams, right? Because no, if you add up the milk you drink and the eggs, et cetera. It's, no, uh, five grams, I think, was... Sorry, five grams, not milligrams. Five grams, you mentioned, was, was the limit. Uh, yeah, it's possible to get it down to a couple grams a day, which is uh, the the... Inflection point where you you see cancer uh, correlating very closely to um, the amount of PUFA in your diet is around four grams per day, and and so if <clears throat> you're pretty safe if you keep it under four grams per day, which you can do just by um, uh, you know, low fat milk or skimmed milk, uh, uh, fruit and uh, low fat cheese and eggs and such. It's yeah, I, I do. I do all that. The only thing I do take is is cooked vegetables. I've been doing that like twice a day. Ironically, I was thinking to myself, sometimes I I can't sleep at night. I'm thinking, there, if you cook food, you're killing the enzymes. And if your body, if your stomach is not generating those enzymes, you're gonna have trouble breaking down that food. Even even if there's less PUFA in it, I'm wondering whether digestive enzyme. You know, Lita Lee talks about that. And I know you know her. Is that something that ultimately? is useful recognizing you have to worry about additives. Um, uh, no, I, I think if you're going to eat vegetables, they should be thoroughly cooked. Uh, otherwise, um, uh, you, partly the problem is that you can't extract uh, all the nutrients if they aren't uh, thoroughly cooked. Uh, and some of the um, uh, carbohydrate uh, uh, complexes are, are going to feed bacteria if they aren't thoroughly cooked. Um, I think measuring your cholesterol again and having your vitamin D level checked, uh, sometimes a deficiency of vitamin D interferes with the way 
your body is handling the thyroid. Uh, it probably uh, leads to more reverse T3 production, but uh, the, the vitamin D level in the blood should be around the middle of the range, 50 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, and the, um, the healthiest uh, population of, uh, for uh, uh, having a, no thyroid disease, essentially, uh, the, they were in the um, below 0.4 on the TSH scale. And yeah. cholesterol is, is a pretty good indication of how you're responding to thyroid. It should be uh, around 200 or a little less. And uh, in the 1930s, uh, cholesterol was uh, recognized as a good uh, diagnostic indicator of thyroid function. Uh, someone published a study showing that when you removed someone's thyroid gland, Immediately, as the metabolic rate went down, the cholesterol went up, and when you supplemented thyroid, the cholesterol came down as an exact mirror image of the metabolic rate. So I think that's exactly what's going to happen here, because before I started your program, for years, my total cholesterol was 200, and I had very good levels according to modern medicine. When I... T Started your diet. I started eating a lot of ice cream. I didn't used to eat that, and a lot of milk. And I ended up. That's when it skyrocketed to three thirty. But I think when you make a change like this, it's a shock to your body. And to your point, I think I need to go through another blood test and see whether or not the impact on the on the the, the thyroid uh, supplement and the vitamin D level. By the way, which was in the forties, but I I'm trying to get that up a little bit. Um, it's 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 below fifty, but it's not dangerously low. It's it's on the low end, somewhere between forty and fifty. Um, so, but, but the, the real question was the temperature and pulse. If, if my, how low, if your symptoms are not there, what, is it reasonable to have a pulse that sort of, you know, ranges between 60 and 70 throughout yeah. the day if you're athletic and, 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 a, and a temperature that really never gets above 98.2? I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, some people have a, a big heart that pumps efficiently uh, and uh, does fine at 65 beats per minute. Yeah, you're right. In fact, I was told I had a, someone when I was a younger kid. They said I had a, a larger heart. Like a, you know, I think that exactly might be correct. Um, you've been very kind with your time. There's one last question, though. This is a real quick one. There's another guy named uh, Lawrence Wilson. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a very prolific writer. Um, he deviates from you on a couple of points, no fruits. Um, um, but he, he says take uh, uh, omega-3s, um, but he's, it's very good. But the one thing he does say, and I know you're big on coffee, is he's big on coffee too, um, but not orally. Um, he's big on coffee enemas. Now, I know in the past you came up once and you mentioned that that can be stressful, but the bigger problem for people over 50, one of the biggest problems, as you've mentioned, is iron toxicity is a real problem. If you do a coffee enemas on a regular basis, is that a way, other than bloodletting, to ultimately reduce the toxicity of iron in your body? Oh, uh, well, uh, just drinking coffee every time you eat an iron-containing food. I always have uh, coffee with oysters or eggs or meat uh, right. because it uh, drastically limits your absorption of iron. Okay. But, the, but my question is... Um, Maybe don't have not a position to answer that. I mean, you may may not know. I'm just I mean, 
mean, you know a lot, but maybe this, you don't have experience in this area, or do you have a view on the coffee enema in terms of its, not, not whether it's stressful or not, because it's like running. If you run the first time, you're, you're going to be stressed, but if you do the same running, you know, 10 weeks in a row, you're, it's not going to be as stressful because your body got used to it. So to me, um, I, yeah, um, I, I know there's a, a lot of benefit some people have from the coffee enema, but I, I think you can get the same benefit probably more by having it with food uh, so that you uh, don't uh, give yourself a, a sudden jolt of uh, stimulation. Uh, that's, that's where the stress is. Uh, it can make you uh, burn fuel so fast that you get hypoglycemia okay well i appreciate the uh, calls caller i don't want to cut you too short but we do have uh, two more callers who are waiting to get some questions in so uh, let's take this next caller caller where are you from and what's your well, question we lost this one it had to do with endometriosis okay, go and on. iud's hmm. is there a relation in the health of that dr p do you think iud's could be responsible for endometriosis uh, from an irritation point of view or um uh, yeah it's been uh, well established that endometriosis is from the prolonged excessive exposure to estrogen without interruption from uh, progesterone. And uh, the, um, the mechanism of the uh, uh, just the plain plastic or uh, copper uh, IUD is to send a signal to the ovary uh, that the, the uterus isn't ready for pregnancy because there's a foreign object in it that the uh, uterus perceives this injury and the signal travels up the fallopian tube and tells the ovary not to make progesterone. So it's a very specific interruption of your hormone ratio the same way that the birth control pill is. Right, so just constant stimulation and estrogen excess with no relief from the progestogenic part of the cycle. Right. Yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, next caller, you're on the air. Away from, what's your question? Hi, this is Alex. I'm from Southern Humboldt. Okay, Alex, what's your um, question? Yeah, hey, my question is just I went through testic- testicular cancer treatment last year. I ended up having uh, my left testicle removed and then went through chemotherapy. And then after that, had a surgery called an RPLND where they removed a section of lymph nodes. Um, and I'm just interested in generic advice you'd have for somebody who's gone through that and gone through, uh, you know, a few months of chemotherapy. I haven't had anything crop back up, but I'm just interested in general health advice for yeah. somebody who's been through a treatment like that. Mm-hmm. How, how old were you at the time? I'm 34 years old. I was 32, yeah. just about to be 33 at the well, time of the diagnosis. Yeah. Was was there an undescended testicle or anything like that, or was it lady cell tumor? No. Type? Yeah, none of, none of the kind of the classic things that would have really elevated my risk. Huh. Um, I didn't have an undescended testicle or anything like that. They were both, like, normal testicles as far as I had known up till that point. Okay. All right, Dr. P, uh, did you hear the question to begin with? Um, uh, yeah, when experimenters have removed, uh, for example, one adrenal gland or one ovary, I, I don't remember any experiments with removing one testicle, but uh, the removal of some of the steroid-forming tissue in those other situations causes the pituitary to uh, drive the remaining uh, gland uh, twice as hard, basically, to keep up the 
uh, systemic level of the of the steroid production, and uh, so I think it's important to watch your uh, LH and FSH levels, uh, and um, to um, there are ways you can without necessarily supplementing an androgen, uh, but you can uh, reduce the stress, uh, keeping your thyroid uh, hormone level up, uh, vitamin D level up, uh, regulating your your protein and sugar intake carefully, and possibly supplementing uh, uh, pregnenolone, uh, which will uh, feed into the, the system, suppressing the uh, exaggerated stress reactions that uh, are more likely uh, if your uh, androgen is low. Uh, testosterone works closely uh, with progesterone and pregnenolone uh, to make it uh, less necessary to produce the stress hormones such as cortisol. Uh, so it, yeah, my testosterone levels are actually up because the one testicle that's left is working double time, so I'm at like the upper range. I've been going to UCSF and going mm. to the O range. Do you know what your too. value is? Is it six, seven hundred? Um, I think it's up seven hundred, seven hundred, seven fifty. Okay, good. Um, I, I think it's good to um, concentrate on the whole anti-stress uh, process because the the androgen is is probably uh, compensating uh, for uh, the, the need for all of the uh, stabilizing and quieting uh, hormones. Uh, DHEA and pregnenolone and progesterone uh, have a stabilizing effect. Uh, pregnenolone is, is the most neutral of those, and it uh, will hold down uh, the, uh, the need to produce cortisol and help to uh, restrain LH and FSH production by the pituitary. Okay, is there anything dietarily? They've got me on vitamin D, definitely. They want me to have elevated vitamin D levels. They have me taking, like, mushroom capsules from uh, fungi perfecti, and then it's like fish oil, vitamin D, fungi perfecti, mushroom capsules, and... You want to stop the fish oil. I think that's about it. Yeah, fish oil. You want to cut yeah. the fish oil out? Cut it out? Oh, Definitely. Yeah, that's, okay. that's, that's okay. been the mainstay of uh, Dr. Pete's research in the last 40 years is the toxic effects of uh, polyunsaturates, and fish oil is probably the worst of them all. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm well-versed. I've listened to your program yeah. a million times, and I know I know the polyunsaturates are a problem. I, didn't, I, was, I guess I was oblivious to the fact that uh, fish oil was, was included in that category. Yeah, very much so. Yep. Okay. So um, avoid yeah, the fish oil is definitely not essential. I mean, I, 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 the science, I'll go back and listen to the actual ke like chemicals or uh, reactions that you're speaking about, but is there anything dietarily or whatever that you'd recommend just um, generically would be kind of a soft approach to, uh, yeah, try, to try to achieve the, the aims you're speaking, you're talking about? Uh, supporting the anti-stress effect of vitamin D, a high ratio of calcium to phosphorus is very helpful. So cut down your meat. Okay. You cut down your meat intake compared to your dairy intake, or have a good ratio of dairy to meat, and just eat smaller okay. amounts. Yeah, not a lot of muscle meat. If you're going to eat meat, you're better off consuming the bone broths, the knuckle broths, and the shanks, and, and a little liver, maybe yeah, there you go. once or twice a month. 
Over yeah, definitely. I like all the nasty bits. So I'm, I've been good about eating all that. And I've been on that kind of a, a thing like Sally Fallon type diet for a while. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for your call. We're going to have to close it out here because it's three minutes, three minutes to eight o'clock. And I just want to let people know about Dr. Pete's details. So thanks so much, Dr. Pete, for joining us. There's a whole bunch of questions we didn't get to, but um, great. I'm glad people were uh, listening and coming from all over the globe here. So <laughs> um, thanks so much, Dr. Pete. Okay. Good night. Okay. So for those people who have listened to the show, uh, they want to find out more about Dr. Pete and his work and the publications that he's produced or books or his newsletters or his research articles. It's www.raypeat.com. R-A-Y-P-E-A-T dot com. Uh, lots of articles fully referenced. Uh, our website is uh, westernbotanicalmedicine.com. Under the resources tab, uh, we've just uploaded all of the shows, including the 2016 and 2017 shows. And, um, yeah, big fans of Dr. Pete. He's taught us a lot, and uh, it's how we live. So for those people that called in, I'm glad you joined. Hope you've got good answers. Um, for those people who want to listen to the archive, it can also be listened to on kmud.org under audio archives under Friday Night Talk, and it's 7 till 8 p.m. on the third Friday of every month. Um, gosh, I'll be driving home in the dark here, folks. It was just like yesterday. We were at the solstice, and now we're already winding forward to the autumn of fall. Here it comes. So thanks for listening. Uh, our number here is uh, 1-888-WBM-HERB. Uh, we can be reached Monday through Friday, Business hours. Good night.